0: Hey, welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Tyler Orton, and this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Of course, the BC budget it was revealed this week. This is the first budget from the new BC NDP government. A lot of nuggets in there that we're going to dive into throughout this podcast. First up, we have Jock Finlayson from the Business Council of British Columbia. He's the chief policy officer there. He's talking to Haley Wooden and Kirk LaPointe all about the big highlights the economists are giving us here. After that, we are going to speak to Tom Armstrong, Executive Director of the Co-op Housing Federation of BC. There's 30 points to delve into with regards to housing strategies. So he, a housing advocate, has a lot to share with me and Kirk LaPointe. So stay with us here on the Business in Vancouver podcast. First up, here's Jock Finlayson. Welcome back to the
1: program. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3, where the daily business program from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com, our website. I'm Kirk LePoint.
2: I'm Haley Wooden. The BCNDP tabled its first full budget on Tuesday. It's a balanced budget with an unprecedented amount of spending over the next three years. $1 billion for childcare, $1.6 billion to build affordable housing, $1.5 billion on health care, and of course, along with that, $4.4 billion in tax hikes. Joining us now on the line from Victoria is Jock Finlayson, Chief Policy Officer at the Business Council of British Columbia. Thanks so much for joining us, Jock.
3: Yeah, thanks for the invitation.
2: I think the expectations on this one were big in fact minister of finance carol james noted that they were huge expectations going into this budget do you think that they met those expectations
3: i think bill uh, will be fairly happy uh, with the reaction interest groups and others who uh, you know are sympathetic to the new democrats Uh, much of what's in this budget reflects priorities laid out in the uh, ndp election platform Uh, reiterated in the throne speech that was delivered uh, recently. So there weren't a ton of surprises in there other than this uh, new employer payroll tax, which we were not expecting.
1: Yeah. I, I think I've been in about 50 budgets now, Jock, and every time there's a sleeper in there that the government doesn't necessarily tell you a lot about and is there and somebody discovers it. Is this the thing this time, the payroll tax?
3: Well, yeah, I wouldn't say it was a sleeper because, I mean, they, they weren't hiding it. it. It 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 was sort of a centerpiece uh, in, in some respects of the budget. Um, I mean, the NDP was committed to getting rid of MSP premiums over four years, and we expected there'd be some new revenue measures brought forward eventually to deal with that, but we didn't anticipate that it would all be done in uh, in budget 2018. There is a bit of a sleeper, Bill little Kirk, in this budget, and it's the – Looming expiration of collective agreements covering the whole provincial yeah. force—more than yeah. three hundred thousand mm-hmm. people who work uh, in for government as well as for healthcare, education, social service agencies—they're uh, all unionized. The collective agreements expire in either two thousand nineteen or two thousand twenty, and uh, it remains to be seen what kind of new agreements will be hammered out by uh, a somewhat more labor-friendly government, which is now in power in Victoria, that potentially could have quite significant effects on the overall fiscal framework that the government's operating with. And we didn't learn very much uh, in detail about that today.
1: Obviously, the government doesn't want to tip its hand about where it wants to go in terms of a labor settlement. That being said, it it did have some contingencies across the next three years that appear to have a little bit of budge room there. Um, what do you think are your expectations now in terms of a settlement? Is it going to be a larger-than-inflation settlement for the public service? Well,
3: I don't want to prejudge that. I mean, the, the uh, uh, New Democrats are, are friendly to the trade union movement. That's not a secret, but that doesn't mean they won't be reasonably good stewards of the, of the books. Uh, when you're in government and you see that over half of all spending, uh, by the Government of British Columbia, ends up being absorbed by labor costs in one way or another. It does tend to uh, grab the attention of decision makers. So, I'm not going to prejudge what uh, what will be, in, you know, in, in included in those collective agreements that are still to be negotiated. But uh, I'm just saying there is some risk, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, to the fiscal plan because of of, of all this collective bargaining that's going to be taking place in the next 24 months.
2: When you look at the taxes that have been introduced and the taxes that are slated to rise, what areas are going to be the most impacted and what do you think that means more broadly for BC's economy?
3: Yeah, well, I I would divide the comment on taxes into three buckets. The first is uh, the major surprise here on the tax side, as I mentioned, is the uh, employer's health tax that will be brought in that will raise almost $2 billion a year on a full year basis when it's implemented, so that's quite a quite a significant uh, change, although they're phasing out the MSP premium, so some of that money will, will flow back uh, to taxpayers, but there'll still be a substantial net increase in taxes on business uh, because of the new employer health tax. Then there's all the stuff they're doing on the housing side, and I counted about $500 million of new revenue streams mm. from various measures that were announced mm. today. Uh, higher property transfer tax on expensive homes, uh, increasing and expanding the geographic uh, scope of the foreign buyers tax, the new speculation tax, um, and also an increase in the provincial school property tax on expensive homes. These four measures together are about $500 million roughly of revenue on a full year basis and uh, you know quite a substantial sum of money. And that money is being used partly to fund some of the affordable housing initiatives, but also, I think, just to pay for the government's uh, programs in general.
0: Chuck and Finley's- then the third
3: bucket is other tax changes. In that respect, there was very little in the budget in terms of no personal income tax increases, no corporate income tax increases, and no changes to the B.C. provincial sales tax.
1: Jock Finlayson our guest. He's a chief policy officer at the Business Council in BC. He's, of course, a regular contributor to our program and to our newspaper. Um, if I might ask, uh, Jock, I, I was looking for um, the same headwind uh, addressing that they seem to have in their budget update uh, last fall. Um, nothing in there about NAFTA, for instance.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the government is perhaps downplaying some of the risks to the economic Uh, landscape that we're looking at, uh, uh, Kirk, um, you know, they have a table in the budget that talks talks about risks, higher interest rates or lower economic growth or shifts in the Canadian dollar. But there are some other risks out there, harder to quantify, but I think quite material from a business point of view. One is definitely the future of NAFTA and more broadly the Canada-US trade relationship. This is having a chilling effect already Mm -hmm. on business investment and business confidence in Canada. Uh, and that may get worse. A second is the implications for Canadian competitiveness of the huge tax reforms that are <clears throat> being implemented in the United States, yep. especially on the business side. There was no mention of that in uh, in today's BC budget. And we think, you know, Canadian governments, both in Ottawa and provincially, over the next couple of years are gonna to have to respond in some way uh, to the much more attractive business tax environment <clears throat> that is being put in place in the United States and they have to figure out how can how can they do it in a way that doesn't break the bank but that still makes Canada reasonably appealing as a place to put capital. We we are definitely worried about that and unfortunately this budget doesn't have anything in it that is going to encourage companies to invest or grow in British Columbia. So that's really something we'll be taking up with the government in future conversations.
2: Yeah, that was a concern during the election and after the NDP was elected, what an NDP government would mean for business competitiveness. Here in the province, nothing mentioned, I guess, explicitly in the budget, but since election, where do you think BC sort of stands? What's shifted on the competitiveness side of things?
3: Yeah, I think Canada, I mean, this is more of a Canadian phenomenon than a than made in BC, but I mean, Canada has had a business tax advantage in terms of the overall corporate income tax structure and system over the United States uh, for the better part of 20 years, and that has completely disappeared as a result of the uh, tax reforms passed in the United States and signed by President Trump. He wrote, wrote a column on this for VID, for I guess back in January. And the impact of it won't be immediate, but it is gonna show up over time. And it means that one of the few areas where Canada has had uh, an edge on the United States from a competitive perspective is now is now shifted. In in a, in a major way, so you know it's worrisome. How do we respond to it? Uh, I'm not suggesting we can you know slash taxes across the board, but we do need to be looking at measures that would uh, incent companies to want to put capital in the ground here in 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 BC and and create jobs. And as I say, this budget wasn't really focused on that. This budget was more about social programs and housing affordability and delivering on some of the commitments that the new Democrats made in their election platform, it wasn't primarily about building or strengthening uh, the foundations for a competitive economy. So that's, again, something we're going to have to do some more work on and perhaps persuade the government to pay more attention to it <clears throat> over the next
1: year or two. It sounds a bit glib, but it looks as if the government's going to be the only ones to ever lose money selling drugs. Um, it. it, it <laughs> uh, uh it, the, the minister did not talk uh, at all today about there being any kind of bullish market for uh for the legalization of recreational cannabis and what kind of revenues might come into government government coffers it, are we just to now expect that actually this will be a cost for government
3: I, I doubt that over time. I think it's early days yet, and they're probably, to be fair, you know, the Ministry of Finance officials are busy with a lot of other things. They have to get in place to bring a budget forward, especially under a new government uh, that has got somewhat different priorities than the previous administration. I just don't think they've had a chance to turn their attention almost in an analytical way to trying to figure out how do you measure uh, the potential size of this new industry what kind of revenues, uh, what, what what kind of total revenues would be generated from the sale of what will now be legalized cannabis products? And what is the tax yield on that uh, that will flow to the government of B.C.? Which includes not just the sales tax, uh, but, of course, the income taxes that will be paid by companies and by individuals that are involved in the sector. So I, I, think, I think there's likely to be some upside surprises, Kirk, mm-hmm. <laughs> with respect to the total revenues that the government may reap over the medium term, and I wouldn't put too much stock in the limited information that was on that topic in today's budget. Mm-hmm.
2: We're looking at a balanced budget. We know the provincial economy has been strong and has outperformed on a number of metrics. But you also mentioned, Jock, there have been some risks and there are some risks looming on the horizon and some of them seem pretty near. How would you rate our government's fiscal position after this budget and how prepared they are maybe to to swallow Reasonably strong,
3: I would say, Haley, I think uh, uh, they inherited a strong, you know, a set of books from the previous administration, with the exception of the massive, financial mass at ICBC, but they did inherit a budget surplus and a relatively low debt-to-GDP ratio. They also inherited an economy that has, at least in terms of overall growth, has been fairly buoyant. Um, And that has been helpful to to Minister of Finance, uh, Carol James, in putting this budget together. They are being prudent, I would say, in the assumptions about the economy. They have growth cooling uh, in 2018 after a couple of very strong years in 2016 and 17. And they have a further downshifting in growth for 2019 and 20 down to something closer to 2%. So I would describe that as quite a conservative forecast forecast. Uh, for for overall growth in the B.C. economy. So I don't think they've padded the books, if you will, with unrealistic assumptions about the economy. On the other hand, they're assuming that growth continues. Uh, They're not planning for the next recession or a potential U.S. downturn that some economists are now speculating could occur as early as the second half of 2019. So these are sort of contingencies that uh, would have to be factored into a future budget. They're 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 assuming that growth slows in B.C., but it continues to be reasonably buoyant over the next two to three years. And all of their fiscal projections are based on those assumptions.
2: Jock, thanks so much for joining us today to share your insights on the latest budget.
3: Thanks for the invitation.
2: That's Jock Finlayson, Chief Policy Officer at the Business Council of British Columbia, joining us on the line today from Victoria. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Haley Wooden. And
0: I'm Kirk Lapointe. And that was Jock Finlayson, Chief Policy Officer from the Business Council of British Columbia. And this podcast was brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604 604- 604 at 604-714-3600, or else check them out on their website at ca. Now joining us is Tom Armstrong. He is the Executive Director of the Co-op Housing Federation of D.C. As I said earlier, there are 30 points to dissect here with regards to the newly unveiled housing strategy. Kirk, LaPointe, and I, we go into deep detail all about that with Tom. Listen to this next.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Roundhouse Radio 98.3, and we're Business in Vancouver, the business show every day from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk
0: LePoint. I'm Tyler Orton. In the BCNDB's first budget since forming government last year, Finance Minister Carol James has unveiled a new 30-point plan to tackle the housing affordability crisis. Joining us to discuss how effective this strategy will be is Tom Armstrong. He is the Executive Director of the Co-op Housing Federation of BC. Tom, thanks for joining us on the show.
1: My pleasure. Yeah, we joked as we started about... uh 30 points. What are the 30 points? Stop. No, it's Just off the top of your head. Yeah. <laughs> I'll start from 30 and roll through to number one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> give, us one the, give us one point that you feel in your sector of, of housing is going to make a pretty significant difference.
4: You know, I, I think it's the commitment to partnering uh, and partnering in, in delivering uh, supply and affordability across the full continuum of need. That, that's what, in my mind, has been missing from previous attempts to tackle the housing problem. Uh, everybody has a favorite policy issue or a favorite demographic that they think needs help in the market. This really is an approach to tackling the entire spectrum of need and, and on the supply and the demand side. Uh, and not uh, pretending that one level of government can go it alone, yeah. but depending on the kinds of partnerships we've seen, uh, can be successful. Not only
1: governments, but obviously partners with nonprofit societies, with a whole range of those in the supply chain around housing. That's right. There's there's no one
4: who plays a role in housing that should be excluded uh, mm-hmm. from the solution to the problem we have.
0: You know, the issue I think that a lot of people are having with regards to municipalities, and if we see that, you know, Home prices are going down, that could be a bit of a killer for a lot of people out there with regards to voting. You know If I see my home prices going down, why would I vote in the next government? But if we are able to work with municipalities about increasing supply, do you think that 's going to be one of the keys here going forward here in the region?
4: I think it will be, and given the you know the roots of the the minister herself uh, the, the minister of housing in, in municipal government, I think she 's particularly sensitive to the kinds of constraints that uh, municipalities find themselves dealing with so uh, it's important to give municipalities the tools they need like like the power to zone for rental uh, like the um you know the power to to move property taxes around but uh, i think municipalities are, are going to be a key part of the solution and they'll have
1: some of the flexibilities they've been asking for now to 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 play their role the finance minister yesterday did uh hint somewhat that this might have some kind of impact on home equity that people have but clearly that's where nobody wants to fly if you're a politician at this point. Are they setting about, you think, uh, some expectations with the 30-point plan that actually housing becomes more affordable, existing housing stock becomes more affordable, or is it a new supply of housing that has more affordability to it?
4: I think the latter will be the most demonstrable outcome. <clears throat> of the strategy, and in, in terms of the you know the impact on existing equity, I think you're absolutely right. No one really wants to be seen as the as the government that impairs the equity people have built up in
1: their Vote own. Homes. for me, I'll take two hundred thousand dollars of equity from your house, right? <laughs> so,
4: so I think I think the real impact though is the slowing down uh, of the of the increase relative mm-hmm. to to inflation. I, I don't think many of us would disagree. That the increase in value in homes has been all out of proportion to the you know the the market, and <clears throat> that that's really what I see. It's a damping effect, but it's not. Uh, I th- don't think it's going to reduce the value of anyone's uh, equity. It's just going to slow down the rate at which it uh, appreciates.
0: We have perhaps the fastest growing economy right now in Canada, mm-hmm. and we are expecting population growth to explode over the coming decade. The province is promising one hundred and fourteen thousand. 000- Affordable homes over the next decade. Is that going to be enough to keep pace with what we expect to see just in terms of population growth in the coming years?
4: It will be barely enough to deal with the population growth as we estimated it last year when we put the plan together. But I fully expect that as we look at the numbers uh, over the time period the plan is meant to cover, uh, we'll find there's an even greater need. The the numbers... um, that are in the budget and the numbers that were in the affordable housing plan that the government adopted uh, during the last election campaign were criticized as being too ambitious, uh, too unrealistic. But in fact, I think they're going to be an understatement of the real need over time.
1: Yeah. There is real need out there. And you in the co op uh, co-op housing um, sector on this, I've, I've heard criticism at times that there is still really a, a, a molasses like pace in which you get approval. Uh, in which you can get projects greenlit, uh, in which you know, in which you can actually get get them built. Is there anything in this plan, do you think, that accelerates the process for you for your sector?
4: You know, I think you've put your finger on a very important issue. Um, there's there's a hint in the strategy that um, that that's going to be uh, a priority. We're meeting later today with the minister of housing, and that's going to be one of the first questions I ask: is how are you going to translate that intention into Deliverables on the ground because you're you're right. The um, the delays that we've experienced and that every developer experiences in the in the permitting process, the approval process, uh, costs money and adds to the uh, to the unaffordability that people are experiencing. So I don't think there's a silver bullet in there. If there is, I haven't seen it yet. Um, but again, I think everyone is going to be
1: engaging the minister and BC Housing on that very question. Do you think that this government, this provincial government, is going to be uh, assessed? Uh, On the basis of the way in which it deals with this crisis?
4: I think it will. You know, I think that's a fair uh, way to put it. Uh, The government uh, has put so much emphasis on its determination to solve the housing crisis that it will be a fair test of the government's record uh, when it comes time to uh, take stock of what's been accomplished.
0: And on that note, though, I think an easy target for a lot of people is the foreign buyers. And we do see the increase in the foreign buyers tax is going up to 20%. We also have the introduction of the speculation tax. Uh, We'll have that going upwards from, I believe, $5 of the assessed value per $1,000 of assessed value, I should say. And I'll go up to, I believe, $20 by next year. Are these measures, are, are they going to be effective at actually doing something? Are they maybe more for show? Is, is there an actual issue with regards to foreign buyers or is there just not enough data to make uh, absolute determination at this point?
4: Well, you know, I, I think um, the finance minister yesterday in, in her briefing with the media in the budget lockup was was candid uh, on this issue. She said, um, we have a problem. It has many dimensions we're going to take some bold moves here and we're going to monitor the outcomes very carefully you know, to see if they have their intended uh, effect. And you know, to, I, I don't think anyone really knows uh, with certainty uh, which particular measure is going to have the biggest impact and take us closer to our goals. But I do give them credit for imagining uh, a suite of, of responses to the problem we have and, and being willing to try them. And I think it'll, it'll be incumbent on all of us to... Um, to gather the data that's needed to do a fair and transparent analysis of the impact of the measures that have been taken
1: and see where it takes us. Most of the response, Tom, as you know, to the 30-point uh, plan has been generally, you know, if, if positive, no worse than lukewarm, with maybe mm-hmm. the exception of the Urban Development Institute, which which was pretty quick to decry it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this an era now where we're entering, do you think, in terms of the public debate, and you've seen this for some time in in your situation, where we have to just be aware of the the simple solution, the simple slogan? And are we reaching the point now where we really do apprehend the complexity of this, uh, you know, societally? I, I think that's that's correct.
4: Uh, I sense that there is less partisanship being um, being played out around the housing issue now than ever before. And mm-hmm. people really do have an honest appreciation of how complex and how volatile the market is and, and how uh, risky it is in some ways to take bold action to try and moderate some of the... Um, you know, more dramatic impacts of the market. So, yes, I I feel when we're in front of, say, Vancouver City Council or when we're speaking with provincial uh, politicians of uh, any party, I sense a lot less partisan approach and and more uh, honest determination to get to a solution and and to to make a difference. Yeah, because the, the political posturing, no doubt, has been part of the problem here. Yeah, it d- doesn't help at all. There's no, um, you know, you, you can debate the uh, finer points of any strategy uh, until the cow has come home. And in the meantime, you've helped no one find a more affordable place to live or added one new uh, one new affordable home to the
0: supply in the market. For a long time, we would think, oh, you yeah, know, city of Vancouver might be expensive. Let's go take a look at the suburbs. And it looks mm-hmm. as if this problem has spread to the suburbs as well. And we do see from the government that they are looking at regions like Nanaimo now, the Okanagan, uh, further down at the Fraser Valley. Just are you hearing that these are you know, prevalent issues, not just in Metro Vancouver, but across the entire province, and that these need to be addressed on kind of a provincial-wide basis?
4: That's absolutely what we're hearing. Uh, and part of the alliance we have with uh, the BC Nonprofit Housing Association and, and our other partners in Housing Central, whose members are all over the province, they're saying that the focus on Metro Vancouver in, in discussions about housing policy really has... Um, in some way excluded the people who are experiencing very similar effects in other markets. Yeah. Uh, you know, the homelessness problem in Terrace uh, on a per capita basis is, is worse uh, than you might find in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seychelles is experiencing incredible difficulties. Uh, and up the Sea to Sky Highway, you can see supply and affordability issues playing themselves out. So it's an issue that covers the entire province. And to exclude one area, uh, because the problems uh, in in another maybe may seem to be more acute, is really to skew
1: the debate in, in a way that's not very helpful. Tom Armstrong, the Executive Director of the Co-op Housing Federation of BC, is our guest. Uh, he's been on the program before, uh, and I think when I had you on the program before, we talked about the readiness of this sector compared to the lack of readiness with some municipalities to yes. proceed. Um, is this the time where we can now pull the trigger and action's going to start happening?
4: That's my sense of it, really. I I don't think there's anyone left uh, on any side of the debate who thinks that a stand-pad approach is going to work. Uh, So the community housing sector is ready. We're already uh, taking uh, decisive action on a number of development and redevelopment initiatives uh, to put more housing into the ground that's affordable to more people. Uh, And we have more municipal partners now than we've ever had before. And now we have a willing provincial partner and even a willing federal partner, after many decades of being absent from the scene, so yeah. I think this really is the time. It's a, and they're the turning
1: most... to your sector as uh, as a credible <clears throat> partner in this. You, know, you you have the experience. You certainly have the plans in, that are ready made for any municipality and provincial and federal government to to
4: partake. We we do, and I think the other thing that the um, that our partners have realized is that our mission is closely aligned with theirs. Permanently affordable housing uh, taken out of the market in perpetuity uh, so that it can't be the object of the speculation that received so much attention in the provincial budget uh, is something that, that has to be very attractive to a municipality or any other level of government who has an asset in land and is interested in deploying it to the best long-term uh, effect on, on a market that has become very unaffordable.
0: Tom? Thank you for joining us. We'd love to have you back just as this goes forward, but uh, for now, I want to thank you once again.
1: Always a pleasure. Good luck with your meeting. Yeah, Thank you.
0: That's Tom Armstrong. He is the Executive Director of the Co-op Housing Federation of BC, and you're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Tyler Orton. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. And that was Tom Armstrong, Executive Director of the Co-op Housing Federation of BC. And that's it for our show today. I want to thank everyone for listening. You can subscribe to our podcast. Maybe you can give us five stars on iTunes. That helps us with finding even more listeners. And you can find me online. I'm at Reporton. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. And you can go read my stories and my colleague's stories at dot com. And of course, this podcast was brought to you by Manning Elliott Accounts and Business Advisors. Until next time, this is a Business in Vancouver podcast.